shared a story with Matt this morning when I got here about Brussels sprouts. When I was a kid, I thought I didn't like Brussels sprouts. Anybody that didn't like Brussels sprouts as a kid that likes them now as an adult? All right. I thought I did not like Brussels sprouts. You know, my parents would get the bag of frozen green giant Brussels sprouts, and they would boil them until they were gush, throw them on my plate, and I wouldn't want to eat them. They were awful. They were strongly flavored. And my mom would say to me, listen, they're good for you. They're loaded with vitamins. They'll help you grow. Eat them. And so I would like, hold that and choke them back. I love Brussels sprouts as an adult, and I found that if you just roast them, you don't have to add anything to it. You just got to serve them the right way. And they're wonderful, and they help me to grow. And as I was driving in here this morning, I said to Matt, these scriptures, this letter that Jesus wrote to the seven churches, it's like Brussels sprouts. You know, it's hard to hear some of it is kind of a little bit impalatable, but it helps us to grow. And so it has been our goal as pastors over the last seven weeks to present it in such a way or to serve it to you in such a way that it isn't impalatable. And that you want to take it in and you want to grow from it. So I'm preaching on Brussels sprouts today. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you so much, Lord, that even the words in the Bible that are hard to hear, God, you use them to grow us and to draw us close and to make us better followers of your son. And so I pray that this day and this scripture be no different. Give us ears to hear the message that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through this word. We look to you now, God, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Folks, on uh, June 20th, June 24th of this year, you may all remember at 1.20 a.m. in the morning in Miami, a very large portion of the Surfside condominium building collapsed to the ground. We all watched it happen on the news, leaving hundreds of people without a home and many people to lose their lives. And as a country, we all watched on the television with bated breath as the rescue crews tried desperately to find signs of life among the rubble. It was heartbreaking. It was hard to watch. And it was disturbing to see the events that surrounded that horrific building collapse. Can you hear all that? Like, what if I lift it up a little? Can you hear me now? All right. Let's see if maybe not so much whatever that was. Okay. It was hard to watch, wasn't it? It was difficult to, to, to just fathom what was going on in the lives. But let me tell you, it's even more heartbreaking and devastating now because five days ago a report came out that, that told us that years before, years before the building collapsed, a letter was sent to the city of Miami and to the Condo Association of Owners by an architect, an architectural inspector, detailing what was wrong with the building and what needed to be done in order to prevent a catastrophe. And the advice in that letter, it wasn't acted on in a timely manner. And so there was devastation. And we are left now to wonder what might have happened differently if they had heeded the advice that was sent to them in that letter. Now, 
based on what they have learned from Surfside, neighboring buildings in that same area of Miami are looking at their own internal structures in order to identify if any similar problems exist within their own buildings. And they're looking for ways to improve their own structural framework so that what happened to Surfside doesn't happen to them as well. So they're looking back at the circumstances to determine what happened. And they're looking within their buildings to discern if there are any issues that need to be addressed. And they're looking moving forward to develop a plan for a stronger and more stable building. And I think that's brilliant. I think that's the best thing that they can do. And in a way, folks, that's what we as a church have been doing here together for the past six weeks. We've been looking at Christ's letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And we have heard Jesus tell us what was good and promising and reassuring about those churches. And we've heard him tell those churches also what's wrong and what needed to be fixed. But at the same time, we heard Jesus give the very solution to the problem that each church faced. And we heard him promise that if the church would heed his word and do as he had asked, that they would not only flourish, but that they would enjoy eternal fellowship with God and with him in heaven. And so we're going to wrap up our series today by looking at this final letter to the church at Laodicea. And we're going to see if we can understand what Jesus was saying to the church back then, okay? And we're going to determine what it means for you and me. And then my prayer is that you and I are going to look within ourselves to discern if any of the problems that existed in those churches exist within us. And then we're going to see what we can do in order to develop a relationship with Jesus and a fellowship and an obedience to what he calls us to. Determine, discern, develop. That's what we're going to do, I pray. So let's get to it. I'm going to give you first some history on the city of Laodicea. You need to understand the history of the city or you're not going to understand the words that Jesus said to them. And so here goes. Laodicea was a town, it was a, one of three sister cities that were situated in the Lycus Valley. The Lycus Valley was an area of Asia Minor, which we now know as Turkey. It was located about 100 miles east of Ephesus, where the letter that we've been watching started. It originated and it made its way around the trade route to the seven different churches. Now, Laodicea is on that trade route where it intersects with another major route that people would follow. And because it was located in an intersection, it was a great center for banking and exchange of like gold and money was exchanged in that area. Laodicea was known for the garments that they produced. There was a particular uh, breed of black sheep. We think black sheep are bad. They were good back then, folks. Black sheep that had a shiny and silky feeling wool, and they would make garments out of that, and that was their chief export. That's what they would sell. There was also a medical center right there in the town, and a doctor who was, I guess we would call him today, an ophthalmologist, worked there, and he developed uh, a Phrygian eye salve, and people would come from all over to get this eye salve uh, to heal their eyes if they had any issues with their eyes. Now, despite their incredible worth, Laodicea's biggest problem and their greatest weakness was the fact that they had no water supply of their own. 
They did not have any water supply. Ten miles away in the sister city of Hierapolis, there were hot springs. They were famous the then world over. And people would come from all over to soak, to bathe in these hot springs because they were mineral rich and they had healing properties. And then just seven miles in the other direction was the sister city of Colossae. And Colossae was known for its refreshing, cold drinking water springs. You could drink that water from Colossae. So without their own water system, Laodicea had to build aqueducts with the help of Rome. And they, uh, they channeled the water from Hierapolis, 10 miles away, to Laodicea. And by the time it got there, it was no longer hot from the hot springs. It was lukewarm. And since it was mineral rich, it tasted disgusting. All right. They also were um, vulnerable because of their lack of water supply. Because all an enemy had to do was to seize control of that aqueduct. And this city was without water. And so because they were vulnerable like that, they didn't want to rock the boat, okay? The people of Laodicea didn't want to take off any outside people for fear that they would lose their water supply and it would be easily captured. And so they were complacent and they were compliant and they compromised a whole lot in order to just keep the peace with the world around them. They gave in a lot. And in 60 A.D., this area suffered a horrible earthquake, and the entire city of Laodicea was rubble. It was reduced to the ground, and Rome offered to come in and help them rebuild the city. But the people of Laodicea, being wealthy, they refused that help from Rome because they wanted the whole world to know that they had the means to rebuild themselves. And rebuild themselves they did. Historians have written for us that the rebuild was spectacular, that there were fabulous buildings that were built, and right in the middle of it all, the church, the Christian church of Laodicea, to whom Jesus addresses these words. He says, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now, why would Jesus describe himself like this? I'm going to tell you why. Because the Laodiceans needed to know who it was that was speaking to them. They needed to know who it was that was addressing them. They had forgotten who this Jesus that they were supposed to be serving was and what he stood for and what he had called them to. And so Jesus calls himself the Amen. Amen means truth. That's the meaning of that word. Several times in the Gospels, we'll hear Jesus say things like, truly, truly, I say unto you, right? Right? 10, 12 times in the Gospels, he says, truly, truly. In the Greek, it says, amen, amen. Amen is Greek for amen. Amen means truly. So Jesus, he is the truth. He said, these are the words of the amen. These are the words of the one who is the truth. And John 14 reminds us Jesus is the way and what? The truth and the life. He is the truth. He speaks the truth. And Jesus is the true and faithful witness. Laodicea needed to hear a truth. And it was a difficult truth for them to hear. How many of us just sat up and smiled when we heard that scripture be read this morning? It wasn't me because it was worse than Brussels sprouts. It was hard to take. But Laodicea needed to hear this truth from the Lord Jesus Christ. And they needed to know that the one who was saying was the truth. He's the ruler. 
Some translations say the firstborn over God's creation. He is God. Jesus is God, and Jesus is the truth. And so when he speaks, church of Laodicea, you better listen up. That's why Jesus introduced himself that way. And here's what he said. He said, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. This is a part of the scripture that often gets misinterpreted or mispreached on. Um, and, and I think it's because of the way that we speak in our language today. You know, we compare things in opposites, like you're cold or you're hot, right? And we consider those the opposite. When we talk about our feelings, you're either high or you're low, right? It's the opposite. One's good, one's bad. So, you know, if you're, if you're feeling passionate about something, we say you're hot or you're on fire. And if you're less than passionate about it, we say you're cold. And so we think of things in opposites in the English language. And so when we hear Jesus say, I wish you were either hot or cold, we think that he's speaking in opposites like that. But I tell you, that's not true because if Jesus were saying, I wish you were cold and cold wasn't a good thing, if cold was the opposite of being hot, like that's just not his character. Jesus would never, ever, ever call us to be dispassionate about God. He wouldn't say be one or the other. What Jesus was saying is this, hot is good, cold is good, lukewarm is not good. And you, Laodicea, are lukewarm. So Jesus is using a metaphor here that these people would have understood full well. You are not like the hot water in those springs nearby, which is helpful and healing to the people. And you are not like the cold springs of water, which are refreshing and quenching. You're just lukewarm. You're wishy-washy in this world. You're complacent and you're compliant and you're compromising with the world. And so you're useless to me, Jesus says, and you make me sick. Ooh. Now here's a church that had the same word of God that all of the other churches had. And yet they were not practicing what they read in that word of God. Maybe they were not practicing it before, uh, uh, in fear that they didn't want to take off anyone who would compromise their water supply. Or maybe they weren't practicing it because they cared too much about what the world thought of them. Because they were really putting on a front for the world. But whatever the reason, this was a church that looked more like the world than it did like the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus uses strong words with them. Our translation says he will spit them out of his mouth. But the word that was used in Greek translates more accurately to vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus is really telling them, you make me sick. Let me tell you something. I don't ever, I don't ever want to hear those words directed toward me coming out of the mouth of my Savior. I want words of affirmation. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what I want. I don't ever want to hear Jesus say, you are wishy-washy and compromising. You're lukewarm. You make me sick. And so, church, let's be careful not to compromise God's word and not to compromise God's will because of the influence around us. And the potential for that is great, given the hostility of the world around us. Does anybody agree with that? Say amen, because that's the truth. Let us not be lukewarm. I was reading an article as I prepared this sermon and described the lukewarm Christian, and uh, I did not like necessarily what I was reading. So here's what it said. Lukewarm people, and see if this fits you, like some of it fit me. Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when they are in conflict. They want to fit in in the church, but they want to fit in outside the church as well. And they care so much about what other people think about their actions that they forget to think 
about what God would feel about their hearts. Uh-huh. I wonder how often we see that in the church today. You know, we don't want to fight. We don't want any conflict. So we just allow some things that we know might not necessarily be pleasing to God, but we want to keep the peace, right? I see it in the church all the time. We're compromising in order to keep the peace. Lukewarm people are very concerned about seeing being saved from the consequence of their sin. Yes, yes, but they have a hard time giving up on the sin itself. I see that one all the time. I fall victim to that one all the time. You know, we ask Jesus to cover our sins and we make a commitment to him. And then yet we still do that thing that we asked him to forgive us for. Gossip, past judgment, lust after things, covet. You can fill in the blank with anything you want because we ask for forgiveness and then we tend to still do it. And when we do that, it makes us lukewarm because we've compromised. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors and coworkers and friends because they don't want to be rejected and they don't want to make that person feel uncomfortable talking about private things like religion. Lukewarm people gauge their goodness by comparing themselves to the rest of the world. They're satisfied as long as they're not as bad as the other guy. But we're very uncomfortable when being compared to the standard of Jesus' holiness, which is the standard to which we are to stand. Lukewarm people love God, but maybe not with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind because there's so much other things that we need to uh, obtain and accomplish in order to feel as though we're flourishing here in this world. Lukewarm people probably swear and drink less than the average guy, but besides that, they don't typically look very different from the average guy. You know when spirit taps you on the shoulder and says, you need to be listening to what you're reading here. He did that to me. He did that to me. And here's the question. How often do we see that? We see it in ourselves. We see it in the church. We see it all over the world. People compromising because we don't want to make waves. But let me ask you this, Christian. If we're not going to make waves, what kind of witness are we showing to the world? What kind of witness are we bearing if we dilute the refreshing and the quenching, healing word of God before the world. That's, that's just no witness at all. And this is what Jesus was trying to say to the church at Laodicea. And it's, I think, what he's trying to say to you and me as well. You know, we, you and I have, and we know the word of God. I pray that we would bear witness to that word, a witness that is both healing and refreshing in this world, that we might not be lukewarm. Jesus goes on in verse 17, he says, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Those are tough words to hear, weren't they? Anybody see Jerry Maguire? And he gave this whole speech and, and she looks at him and she says, you had me at hello. And he gave the whole speech, no, you had, you had me at wretched. Jesus, like I didn't need to hear all the rest of the things that I am, but he said, wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. Here's Laodicea's problem, okay? Laodicea doesn't see the problem. They can't see their problem. They think they are rich because they have all sorts of wealth and money and goods. But remember, Jesus tells us that those things are not lasting. Anything that we accumulate on this world is meaningless when we leave this earth. What is lasting is what Jesus offers us. 
And what does he offer us? He offers us the riches of his grace, the riches of an inheritance in his kingdom, the riches of eternal life. Those are the things that are lasting. And Jesus says to Laodicea, you can't even see how lost you are. You're blind to it. And I think he hit the nail on the head. Like, this is a group of people who were calling themselves the church. And yet they couldn't even see that they were putting their faith and their trust in their own things and not in the things of God. And Jesus said, I counsel you, buy gold from me, gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so you can see. Remember, the people of this church had put their faith in their great commerce and in their black garments and in their eye salve. And Jesus said, no, you need the riches I give you because they're riches that last beyond this lifetime. And you need the garment that I can place on you because that's the garment that will cover your sinfulness and your shame, a garment that's white as snow. And you need the salve that I have so that you can see that you are placing your faith and your trust in the wrong things. Why does Jesus say these things? I'm going to tell you. He gives us the answer to that question. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. The people in this church were behaving badly. And Jesus would have been perfectly within his right to say, you know what? Get out of my house. I'm done with you. But he didn't say that. He said, I love you. And so I'm going to tell you these things that are hard to hear because this is what will help you grow and learn and be the church that I've called you to be. It's like when we as parents discipline our children when they do wrong. We don't, we don't do it for any reason other than that we want them to learn and grow and not continue to make wrong choices. We do it because we love them and because we want the very best for them. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. I love you and I want the very best for you. I want you to be the best that you can be. And so here is some hard truth. Listen up. Determine, discern, and develop. So this is where you and I now have determined what that letter means. It's time now to look within ourselves with the help of God's Holy Spirit and discern whether any of these issues that Jesus is speaking about to these churches exist in our own lives. And if they do, it's time to develop a plan and develop the relationship that he's calling us to. And Jesus, he gives us the way to do that when he says this. He says, be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. There's something very important that I think, need, think that we need to understand here is that if Jesus is on the other side of the door and he's knocking, he's on the outside, right? And so if Jesus isn't inside of the church, who is? And it's important. 
also for us to know that the syntax changes here. The language that Jesus uses changes here a little bit. See, he's been addressing up to this point the whole church, the group of people. He says, when he says you are wretched and you are blind, he's saying like you all are wretched and you all are blind. He says, I know the deeds that you all are doing. Jesus was saying y'all is what he was saying. Y'all are blind and y'all are poor. But when Jesus says this, when he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and you open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal. That's not addressed to the you in Greek that is y'all. That is addressed to the you in Greek that is you. It is singular. It is to the individual. Jesus is speaking to you. He's speaking to you individually. Verse 20, I feel, is the best explanation in all of God's word on how to start a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. The first thing that we need to understand is that maybe Jesus is in on the inside. If he's at the door and he's knocking, he's not on the inside. But guess what? He's at the door and he's knocking and he's calling out to you and he's pursuing you. And when you get a sense that he's maybe not on the inside, but that he's pursuing you and you begin to be awakened for your need to have the Lord Jesus Christ in every aspect of your life. Jesus is at the door and he's knocking and he says, if you hear my voice and you open the door... I will come in. So first we have to hear his voice and understand and discern that we need Jesus in our lives. But then we got to open the door. Jesus isn't going to break the door down. He will never be arrested for being a, never a breaking and entering with Jesus. He will knock. He will call out to you. But you have to open the door. You have to make the invitation. And when you do, Jesus says, I will come in and we will share a meal together. How do you make the invitation? You just say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I need you in every aspect of my life. And he will come into every aspect of your life. Folks, when you and I make a promise to one another, if we come to an agreement, we're going to work together and we come to a deal, what do we do? We shake hands, right? We shake hands or we sign a contract. Back then, when somebody came to a covenant or a promise, when two people came to a promise with one another, here's how they marked it. They would share a meal. They would break bread together. And Jesus is saying, if you invite me in, if you open the door, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a partnership with you. I will be yours and you will be mine and we will work together to accomplish what we set out to do. Jesus is saying, let's have a relationship. Let's work together. Let's love one another. Let's share a common goal. And let me just tell you, folks, that's the answer. We have looked at seven churches. Some of them were doing well and some of them were not. But the common thing that Jesus said to each and every one of these churches is this. He said, I want you to love me the way that I love you. I want us to have a right relationship. I want us to work together and follow after the will of our Father in heaven. 
that's the individual relationship that Jesus wants to have with you. He wants to work together with you individually. And here's his invitation to the church. He says, I want us to share the common goal of inviting everyone into this relationship for eternity. And so the answer is Jesus. And it starts with you. It starts with me. It starts with us as individuals. And then when you and I stand together, we become the church. When we stand together with Jesus, we become, we become Christ's church. The church is in our building. Let me remind you of that. It is our individual and our collective relationships with the Lord Jesus Christ and with one another. And it is our desire to achieve his mission, which is to seek and save those who are lost. I don't know about you, but I have seen pieces of myself all throughout these letters to these seven churches. Some in good ways and sometimes in bad ways. And I've heard my Savior teaching and directing me and loving me and longing that I would see him and seek after him. I wonder, have you? Folks, we have heard, we have received the letter from the architect of our faith. And it is a letter that tells us what good we are doing. And it tells us where we need to do a little bit of work and repair. So that we will not find ourselves one day looking for signs of life among the rubble. But that we would stand. That we would flourish and that would be a house where all can find a home in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he calls us to. Are we ready to answer? Individually and as a group? Let's pray. Spirit of God, give us ears to hear what these letters say to us individually and to our church as a whole. Give us hearts to receive it and give us strength to be victorious in Jesus Christ, in whose name we offer you this prayer. Amen.